Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Joe Chivers, who's the director and founder of Property Bloom. Joe is an expert in property development. We have a chat to her about her property investing past, how she got her start in development, and how she helps her clients to achieve equity in their development projects. It's a great interview with some great advice, and Joe is very gracious with sharing her background and her story. I think you'll really enjoy it. Here's Joe. Thanks for joining us, Joe Chivers. <laughs> Hi, how are you, Mike? I'm very well, and uh, I'm very pleased to have you on. So I'm looking forward to the to the chat today. So, Joe, who are you, and what do you specialize in? Well, um, I am a property development project manager. My business is called Property Bloom Australia Approach Limited, and I um, and I'm a mother as well. Very important role to two boys, um, sixteen and ten, and. Um, I guess I specialise in project managing, property developments, and, and and I'm a property investor, and I guess I am a bit of a part-time writer as well. Yeah, I mean, you're a, a regular media commentator. I've seen you across all sorts of publications from realestate.com and Sky Business and Property Observer, so your uh, reputation precedes you. To give mm-hmm. us a bit of dirt on the, uh, on the Joe behind closed doors, what were the uh, posters that are prime real estate on the bedroom wall as a youngster? <laughs> Well, on my bedroom wall was horses. Right. I was horse, horse mad. <laughs> One of those girls that loved horses and I just wanted a horse and, um, you know, I would always just, you know, be crazy about anything in a magazine. I'd tear out and put on my wall if it had a horse in it. <laughs> awesome. So we've had a couple of people talking about Ferraris, but it's uh, horses <laughs> for you. Yes, yes, horses all the way. So how did you get started in property and what was your first investment? Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> I guess my, my, my first investment really was uh, the family home with my husband and we bought in uh, Northern Beaches and we were very, very fortunate just by fluke to buy at the right time. I mean, we bought it as a family home, not an investment property, but yeah. when I look back on that, um, it, it was fantastic purchasing a house in the right area which is close to the beach and close to amenities and schools and, and everything like that. I didn't really know that we were looking for that but um, and high, hindsight gives you what you know wonderful is a wonderful thing. So that was really the first investment in property um, and then after that it was an off the plan apartment in a boutique um, a boutique development again on the northern beaches um, and that was after I had done a little bit more education in property investing was you know after I decided I would start investing and um, you know that, that ended up quite a good investment for me excellent yeah I'm interested to hear more about that one um, some people just seem to be destined what they end up being their, their career it's or it's you know it's a family lineage or you know my 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 father's father worked in the military, so I was always going to do the same. That doesn't strike me as something that applies to yourself. Um, <laughs> I want to know what a Jillaroo is, how Calvin Klein is even involved in that, and how the hell you got to where you are now. <laughs> oh, it sounds funny when you put it like that, isn't it? <laughs> Interesting, our, our backgrounds. Well, I'll give you a quick overview. Um, basically, I guess, you know, I'm a Sydney cider and uh, went to school here in Sydney. When I left high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, like a lot of kids, I guess. And so I decided to uh, um, take a year out of, out of um, study and go jewel rowing. 
I had um, some ho- experience with horses. I had my own horse when I was younger. I was luck- lucky enough to. And so I thought I'd lo- like to go and work on the land, work with horses, work and just see what it's all like. Um, and what I found out, I worked um, I worked in a sheep station in Walgett and then I went to a quarter horse stud down near Goulburn. And um, what I did find out is it's very hard work, um, lots of hard physical work, but it was great. It was a really good thing to do. I learned a lot um, and had a lot of fun and got to work with my beloved horses on the way. Uh, so from there I did a, a secretarial course um, at the request of my mum who thought that would be a very good background to have, yeah. uh, learning even shorthand at the time and, and actually learning to type on a manual typewriter, so I'm giving away my age a little bit. <laughs> However, um, uh, it was good. It was actually very, very good um, to have those skills and I, I still use them now, of course, for typing. Uh, from there I went into work as a secretary but my... my um, my joy was really to, or my goal was really to travel. So I saved up, an, up enough money and uh, went backpacking for a few years, as a lot of, a lot of Aussies do. Yeah, yeah. And when I came back after about two and a half years, I thought I'd better settle down, get a great job. And I got a job in the cosmetic industry. And from there, I moved into a marketing role, product manager's role, and sort of started that marketing career in corporate in the corporate world. So my last role was the regional uh, marketing manager for the South Pacific for Calvin Klein Cosmetics. So that's where Calvin Klein comes in. Right, nothing to do with the horses. Nothing to do with the horses at all. Um, And it was a fantastic job, you know, flying back and forth to New York, um, actually working in Trump Tower. uh, And... Yes, and it was it was great, but that was at that stage. I was into about two years into that role when I realised, gosh, it's it's about time to start thinking about having a family, and so I just couldn't work out really how I could, you know, have kids and keep up a high demanding corporate role, and that led me to my next stage of my career, right. which is property developing awesome and we're gonna tease that inside and outside and back to front and and all that sort of thing later so i'm looking forward to 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 getting deeper into that one um if your story wasn't already interesting enough you've got a smashing sound and maiden name and a story about your father escaping the nazis i actually feel disappointed that um my background is 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 so white bread compared to yours what can you tell us and can you help us to pronounce your your name in the proper dutch is it Yes, my maiden name was jo- Joanna Chib. Sorry, Joanna Vandergrind. Vandergrind. Now I can't. I can't unfortunately speak Dutch, so I can't say it really with a Dutch accent. But something like Van Vandergrind, something like that. Right. Um, and probably Johanna as well. Johanna. Yes, Johanna. Although my name's not with the H. But um, yes. So Dad was Dutch, and unfortunately he's passed away now, which is um, very sad. But he had an amazing uh, life. And we found out a lot of information. We had a big family reunion back in Holland a while ago and we got to meet all our cousins. He was one of ten um, in, in his family. So we had a lot of brothers and sisters and we had our aunties and uncles and cousins. So when we were over there, it was actually back in the year 2000. Oh, no, just before because oh yeah, I remember I was pregnant with my first son. So um, we had all these stories. Now, Dad was very quiet. He... He wasn't what I would call a great communicator. Um, he was a uh, very quiet, hard-working Dutchman. Um, 
didn't really share a lot of feelings or how you know what was going on but what when we we were very all su- sort of surprised to find out a lot more about his life from his brothers and sisters and one of the stories went that he um, at the age of I think about 18 or 19 maybe a bit younger 17 um, was when the, the Second World War was on and the Nazis had occupied Holland and one of their strategies I think was to come along and take all of the young boys and take them back to Germany and train them as Nazis. So obviously they all wanted to hide and they would hide from the, the Nazis when that, that those times would come and they had very poor conditions, there was no food. Um, he told we heard stories of them, you know, eating tulip bulbs and, and into a soup to make, you know, make do and rats and whatever else they could get their hands on. So it sounded like it was very hardcore. Mm. But when Dad, Dad actually got um, captured and he was put on a train um, and he was on his way to Germany and down at the south of France, he jumped off the train, he somehow escaped and he walked all the way back to Holland. So he made his own way back to Holland and, um, you know, basically from there, after the war finished, he um, he decided to immigrate to Australia and um, and then he went into a very, uh, he was a bit of an entrepreneur, I guess, uh, very hardworking. He always had the opinion that, you know, you, anyone can get a job. Anyone can get a job. So stop bludging, get out there. <laughs> Some of his words. <laughs> Uh, I guess so, if you were able to escape from the Nazis, you've got enough nows to sort of make it in the business world. Exactly, exactly. So there was no slacking off for us kids. You know, we all had various different jobs when we were, you know, at school. And, and I think that's where I got a lot of my work ethic from as well. Um, and Dad used to, um, he did a variety of different jobs. But he always used to bring home these business magazines, BRW, and I would always read them after him. And that's when I think I really got interested in business. Um, yeah, so so that's uh, that's the story of of Dad. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's an amazing story. You you wonder how many sort of strong, silent types there are, you know, of, of fathers and grandfathers brooding over some amazing stories like this. But that's an absolute mm-hmm. amazing story. So, yeah. Joe, you you went from earning I think it was sixty dollars a week uh, on the land, to, you know, to flying to London and working with these big marketing brands. I'm I'm guessing you rubbed shoulders with the sort of one percenters did did that did, did that sort of level of wealth get you sort of thinking about your own sort of future and how you can sort of have a family and get that financial freedom as well yeah it was interesting actually I'm very down-to-earth person but as um as I was traveling you know in New York they used to put us up at the Plaza Hotel and these amazing hotels and we get picked up by you know a personal chauffeur and it was was amazing um, but it was funny. I always felt a little bit out of, out of that world. Like, you know, there was a lot of superficial people in that world. And, you know, but it was good to see. It was lovely to see. Um, but I just always knew that it wasn't really my world. Um, but it was good to give me some context and, and contrast, I guess. And I guess my real um, drive came from seeing my parents on the pension after they retired, um, they had sold the house and their business in Sydney and moved up to Port Stephens and they had a beautiful little house and it's a gorgeous area up there. But they were cash poor and they were reliant on the pensions and I just watched that and thought, gosh, you know, they don't have enough money that they could go and have a, you know, world cruise or, or you know, just they were very care- had to be very careful with, with the, the money they had coming in because they were asset poor but, you know, cash rich, uh, sorry, asset rich but cash poor. Yeah. 
And back then there was no superannuation and they didn't really have any other investments apart from the family home. So that was really the catalyst, I think, for me to want to look at their situation and, ch- and, and have something different for myself and my family. And not really an uncommon story, I guess, of, of that sort of generation. And it sounds like your, your parents um, you know, worked absolutely hard. Uh, there was no slacking off that sort of resulted in their their position. It was just a matter of you know debt was a bad thing and work hard and pay off the house and then hopefully the government will look after you, which was sort of fair enough back then, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So um, I wanted to have something different. I had, I really hadn't. I guess by the time I'd come to that situation, I was already pregnant with my first son and. Um, another little catalyst for me was picking up the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, who you know by Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah, who yeah. Goes on to obviously a lot of great messages in that book, but one of the ones that rang home to me was to become financially literate and and independent, and to set yourselves up for the future and not be reliant on governments. So that kind of started me off on my little property journey. Um, back then, which was about 17 years ago because I was pregnant with my first son. I always remember that. It's great having that as a moment that I can look back on and remember how long ago it all started to happen. Yeah, wow. Um, So, Joe, your first property deal after the the family home was an absolute beauty. You um, bought a property on the northern beaches. Can you tell us a, a, a bit about the, I guess, the research that you did and what your end result was? Yeah, sure. We, I had just um, finished a course actually. Oh, actually, no, I was, it was part of the course and I was using this particular development as a case study. Um, in the course, I was taught to look for, you know, very good location and this particular boutique block of four apartments that were being built and sold off the plan were, was in an area that was close to shops. It was in between the lake and the ocean, so it was actually walking distance. It was actually had um, water views but also walking distance to the beach. Everything stacked up from what I'd learned. When I did my due diligence, the only thing I had to get my head around was this is back in... In the early 2000s, so the, the property market had just it started moving. Yep. Um, this particular suburb was still a bit of a sleepy um, beach suburb with a lot of the old original beach shacks and homes there, and there wasn't really a lot of of apartments being built there. I mean, fast forward now, and it's it's you know inundated with apartments, but back then it was hard to find some sales references. So I looked at surrounding suburbs, and I had actually identified this particular suburb as a bit of a flow-on suburb. So what had been happening in say Manly, and then down the down the coast as we got towards this suburb, which was Narrabeen at the time. Yeah. Um, I could see some capital growth happening, um, but then, yeah, the price tag was around about, gosh, top of my head, about, say, 600 And, you know, a few years prior, we bought the family home for about 300 a big, you know, four-bedroom home. So it was hard for me to get my head around. Exactly, yeah. And I thought, gosh, is this, is this overpriced? But... All of my due diligence and research stacked up. And, in fact, I asked the agent so many questions. Um, He ended up hanging up on me when I was ready to actually make my offer because he thought I was just wasting his time. So it was quite funny. Uh, Anyway, luckily I had the developed part of my research. I'd even spoken to the developer and I had his number and he passed on another co-agent. I could make an offer through. And in the end, I got a little discount off. Off, my, off the price and he finished com- construction within a year's time 
and I decided I'd sell that one. It's a pity I would have loved to have held it, but I did the numbers and because I was pregnant about to have a baby, the cash flow, it would have been too negatively geared. Yep. Um, the cash flow wouldn't have been there for us. So um, I decided to sell it, took it to option. It was brand new and it's you know made about 155K uh, within 12 months' time. So that was my first wow. reference. And so you can imagine I went, whoa, this is property games. This is yeah. great. Like, Let's go. I'm going to get into this. Exactly. Now you, but I was lucky because of market conditions as well. You know, the market was going up. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you missed that boom. You were having to wait until 2013 or something for that to come up. And, yeah, certainly it's worth a lot more. But for, for that time frame, those mm. are incredible results. You, you mentioned mm. um, you mentioned cash flow a second ago. And I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, a lot of investors get to the point where holding negatively geared property sort of backs them into a corner when it comes to going to the bank and, uh, you know, getting more finance or, or just being able to, to service the, the difference between the, the rent and, and the repayment. Was 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 that that something that, that you found a, a bit of an issue in building your portfolio that led you to look at development type sites? Yes, exactly. I at the time I was using the off the plan strategy, which I'd learned at, at, as one of the strategies in the course. But it was a bit different back then. The off the plan strategy, you know, the developers would sell to you at a discount. Um, and and again, lucky the timing in the market. You know, if the market was going up, then you could you could. You could um, refinance at the end and pull out some equity, yep. and that's exactly what I yep. did four times. I did that four times, and then realised, gosh, to hold these properties, um, I'm going to need uh, more cash flow. So that's when I did look outside of Sydney and found um, the development strategies that I'm using today. So, can you talk us through your your first development project? Yes, yes, it was up in the Hunter and it was a little cottage bought on a thousand square metres. And so when I started researching this location, I went, wow, the block sizes are so big, the prices are so cheap. I paid 150000 for that wow. and um, did some renovation on the little house, built a duplex at the back, subdivided, um, and that was the very first um, development. And from that, I could see the equity that could be created through adding value through property developing. And that's what really sparked um, sparked me because I thought well, rather than just buying with off the plan, I did make a little bit of equity because it was the market conditions and then we were, we were still buying at a discount back then. Now the developers are selling them at, you know, a forecast of what they might be worth when they do complete construction. Yeah. But, but by by doing your own development, I mean, that really got – learning a bit more about off the plan back then, I did get very interested in the developer's role and I could see that how they could make money. Um, but you really do create equity through property developing if it's done correctly. And generally that's created through the subdivision, the subdivision of the land. So um, – yeah, so you can create equity, which will add value, which will add a buffer, if you like, of safety into your project. And if you want to hold, then you've got a buffer there of equity that you've created. You can refinance and draw some of that equity out and, and use that to keep moving forward. But and I did find also from that development that the yields were were high, like the the the, the rent on three dwellings that was created from one dwelling, you know, was up around the seven to eight percent gross yield back then. Nice. So yeah, wow. Easy to hold on to, so no, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. It was probably cash flow um, neutral at that point. 
So I won't say you sort of chanced upon this uh, this type of, of property investing because obviously from, from everything you've said so far, you're a highly researched person. But I'm guessing that now you're sort of thinking, look, this is the way to go and some friends are sort of looking over your shoulder going, can you help me do that as well? That tends to be how a lot of businesses are started in the property sector. Is that how Property Bloom sort of came about? Yes, exactly that way. Um, really, I didn't know too much of what I was doing in that first development, but I learnt a lot along the way. And I had to set up my team as well as part of that process. So I had to find a builder. I had to find, you know, I had to work with the local agents and and um, solicitors and accountants and, and all of this, all of the people that make up your team as a property developer and even investor. So um, I got all their foundations done. I learnt a lot through going through that first project. And like you said, I had two friends that said gosh could you find us one of those <laughs> and which I did and then I thought well here's a great opportunity for a project management business where I can go and find source development sites project manage that entire process for for our clients and um and yeah so that's exactly how property bloom was uh, born awesome tested out on the friends for nothing and if they find value in it you've got a business exactly and they're still exactly. friends afterwards you can't be doing anything too wrong <laughs> Yes, yes. So, yes. so I, I know that you've been focusing on the Hunter area, um, so just, just west of Newcastle. What, what was it that attracted you to, to this area as sort of a growth corridor? Well, um, we, we work, I, from that very first development, I then focused on the Hunter. So I did a lot of research, and the Hunter region is a massive region. Um, it, it's broken up by the lower hunter and the, and the upper hunter. So there's a whole heap of different uh, towns and a handful of big cities in within that region. So uh, I firstly started working in Cessnock City, which was quite big, you know, it is quite a big city. Then I moved into Maitland. Um, whilst we were seeing um, a lot of activity with the coal mining, we moved into Musselbrook and Singleton as well. Yep. And then finally yep. to Newcastle because the, the benefit Benefit of working in this uh, big region like like the Hunter is there all all of the little cities and towns were in, in different sometimes in different parts of the cycle. Yeah. So depending on what was going on and the economic environment and and the local um, economies of the of those areas, we would just move and it would all come down to the numbers. So Newcastle has had some phenomenal growth in the last few years. It's been um, it's it's really been gentrified over the years and it's a great alternative now for Sydney side is looking to cash out of Sydney and move to somewhere that has beautiful beaches like we do here, uh, has good local economy and has cafe society and the schools and everything else community needs. So there's been a lot of infrastructure spend on Newcastle and, and the surrounding cities in the Hunter. So um, yeah, so it's been working very well for us. And I guess like Sydney siders complain about, you know, foreign investors driving up prices, we're going to have Nova Castrians complain about these rich Sydney siders <laughs> pushing up the prices. And, you know, a lot has happened in, in Newcastle. There's been a lot of cranes in the skyline, a lot of development work. Is, is it, a, a, I guess, a concern for, for you in looking at Newcastle that might be approaching or, or past the peak of the cycle? Or is it a matter of, you know, a good development should be able to, to create that equity in any sort of part of the cycle? Cycle. Yes, no, it's a great question. It's it is at the peak of the cycle, Newcastle. So buying, it's really quite tough at the moment to, to find a decent development site because anyone selling a development site, whereas it may have a house on it, 
on a big enough block, they're wanting top dollar. So I wouldn't really recommend buying, obviously, at the top of the market for developing. Um, property developing is if you're going to particularly buy in the inner inner suburbs where you do need to look at knockdown rebuild um you've really got to buy in at the low t time in the market and then hold and hold and then time your development from that so it's really it is tough uh, we've been working in uh, just in, in new land estates um but again they've uh the, the land prices have gone up and you know, a lot of the developers are putting restrictions against um, dual occupancy or, or larger developments in, within the estate. So it is, yeah, it's getting quite tricky to find land. Um, we are also looking around um, Lake Macquarie Central Coast because I do see uh, there's still, there, there will be long-term growth. So it just depends, you know, like if you do buy something, I think uh, to develop and add value to, I think it's got to be looked at as a long-term hold. Yep. Um and then you've got to time that extra money you put into it because, yes, as you say, we're at the top of the market. It will come around again. Um, I don't think there'll be an oversupply in in the new in the Hunter region as you know generally because um, there's been a lot of in infrastructure built up and, and they are planning for growth for population growth. So um, yeah, I don't think there'll be an oversupply. It's just a matter of yeah timing it. And finding, so that, and finding the site, I guess, which was sort of my sort of my next mm. question. You know, what 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 do you need to look for in a in a good development site? Obviously, there's different rules for different councils on on lot sizes and what you can do. But can you talk us through your sort of due diligence and and how people can find a a, a good development site? Yeah. Well, first of all, you've got to do your research on the area and make sure that that's, that's the right area to be developing in and that there's going to be good demand and, and you've got to work out whether you're going to hold or sell. So if you're going to hold, then you want to check the rental demands. If you're going to sell, you're going to check what um, sales demands there are there and work out who you're building for. Uh, for us at the moment, if we're doing um, villa developments, then the main um, market is downsizes at the moment because there are people in in Sydney and Newcastle and all around capital cities, baby boomers, you know, looking to downsize and looking for low-maintenance dwellings. So it's important to understand what market you're building to. Um, and then looking for their specific land, then it's really important. We always look for very um, safe, what I call safe or low-risk development sites. Yep. Um, I've seen so many um, development sites for sale with DA approvals on them even and they're like, you know, you're building into the side of a hill. Now the problem with building on a sloping site is that you're going to in incur a lot of costs in your site costs. So uh, a lot of site preparation costs, retaining costs and none of those costs will actually translate into end adding value through the end, end um, values or sale price or rental return. So we look for sites there where there will be minimal uh, site costs um, and sometimes you don't know until you cut the site and if there could be some rock off. Of course we have geotech reports done but you, you, you'd never know until you really get started on development what you're dealing with. But we, we look in areas where we know there's precedence, where we know uh, we can do some research on the end values and we know what they'll sell for or what they're likely to be valued at, at you know, within 12 months' time, say. Uh, we look for wide lots. Um, the wider the frontage, the better. And um, if you've got a wide enough frontage lot, you can even get a combination of, you know, double garage and single garage fillers or double, double you know, both with double garages if you're doing a single level 
um, duplex, for instance. So we look at frontage, we look at slope, we look at service availability. You want to know where the drainage, stormwater drains are and where the sewer runs um, because if the sewer is running along um, the front, that's great and and you can have got a small small slope to the street, that's great because you can generally drain to the street as long as there's curb and guttering in the street. That's another thing to look out for because some councils will make you curb and gutter if there's no curb and guttering in the street and that can have another... 50k um, if you're having to put your bitumen shoulder down and, and your curb and guttering across, you know, 20 to 50 metres. Some of those big corner blocks, you know, might have curb and guttering on one side and not on the other. And you can bet your bottom dollar that council will ask you as part of the condition of the DA consent to curb and gutter the other side. Yeah. So, that, again, that's a cost that's going to add, not really add too much value to the, to the end product. So, um, yeah, there's some of the things that we look for in our development sites. Yeah, there's some awesome insights there, Jo. Um, do, let's just say we've, we've selected a site or we've got something that we're interested in purchasing. Maybe it's off market. We've got an inside line. Typically, how do people obtain finance for a development? And is there a sort of standard deposit that you, you need? And is that something that you uh, get involved with with your clients? Yeah, well, we guide them along the way because it's really important people have full financial um, approval. It'll be conditional approval, but they've spoken to their bank or their lender before they make any offers because it's really important. As everyone knows, the lending criteria have changed a lot lately. So you need to know that you can lend the money. So firstly, generally speaking, there's two loans involved. There's usually a loan for the land, and then after you get the DA and the construction certificate approved, then there'll be a loan a construction loan. Um, Sometimes if you're buying a DA and a CC approved um, site, you you can have just the one loan all wrapped in together. But generally, um, our our clients go through the two-step process. Um, I always say to clients, look, get finance on the land. But if you can finance the construction yourself from another line of credit or you've got cash available, then that is the preference because that the construction and finance approval, once you get the DA and CC approved, can that can draw out. Sometimes it's three months before the bank's given that unconditional approval for, for you to start construction. Yeah, yeah and like, having to hold the, the site in the meantime. Exactly, and um, you're sitting there sort of going, come on, come on, come on, we just want to get started. So the pro- for our clients, it's generally about a 12-month process, so it's it's usually only about, say, up to three months to get the, the design of the, the development done and the DA approved, and then it can take another three months for you for your finance or if you if you've got your own money you can or your own cash available you can just start construction immediately so that can shave off a lot of time and then the construction process for a standard duplex or you know what we've been building is around about four to five months mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then the subdivision process the tor- two lot torrents title subdivision process is part of that da so it's approved with the da and then it's usually finalised through, as you're under construction, council need to approve the construction certificate and then it can be registered. So, um, yeah, the whole process is about 12 months. But if you have your own finance available for construction, then you can save about three months. Yeah, awesome. Nice work if you can get it there. Um, exactly. So is, is working with a local council a, a, a big part of, of what you do and how difficult is that and how do the sort of councils differ and, and should, should people be trying to attempt it themselves or do they need to use town planners, for example? Uh, each council is different. Um, 
so it's really important when you when you've worked out where you're going to be developing that you do a lot of research with council you've got to read the development control plan and their local environment plan and they're all available on the website so you can read through those it's really good to get your head around those but they can be quite complicated and, and a little bit confusing and gray areas so i would recommend definitely for first-time developers um, using the the services of a town planning consultant um, we, we're lucky we have a great builder and they do a lot of that for us in-house so we work with them on getting the DA prepared and we as soon as you know what the requirements are then you can design to that and so it's important whoever's doing your drafting or the design or the architect is obviously well up on, on all the council requirements and in addition to that it's not just the council requirements some land estates will have uh, design guidelines as well so if they've got guidelines in place they might have a different setback on the side and the rear than that council do in, in their DCP. So you'll need to also understand what what the estate requirements are. Um, you can deal directly with council. There's no there's no issue with that. Once once you've got your plans done, you can lodge them yourself. That that's quite easy. Um, it's just if you get some tricky questions coming back from the planners, and uh, you may still need to use a consultant to have a look at that. Certainly, you'll need a consultant if there's any. Um, if, if the DA is rejected because you can you can you know fight that or well, before it gets rejected they generally ask for more information and so if you can't prove why your design is not you know meeting some of their requirements uh, and a town planner can usually argue that um, quite well then you will get a rejected DA yeah. so um, it's yeah town planning consultants are a very important part of the process but you can you can manage it yourself every council is different and, and all the timelines differ as well we've had DAs approved in two weeks and the same council three months oh, wow. <laughs> so it depends, just depends on their internal workload and and which you know planner that you've got internally and uh, you know whatever else is going on in that council so um, yeah it's in it's important to be flexible. You can't do too much part. You can't put too much pressure on, on on the planners. They will process it in their own time. Um, but you just need to make sure they've got all of the available information they need to do the processing. Yeah, make it as easy as you can for them, I guess, and they're more likely to sort of push it through. Um, we all know how public servants like to, to put their feet up. Um, <laughs> so, so does that process um, differ, say, the difference between, a, I guess, a vacant lot or a house that's already on site and you're wanting to subdivide or build, is one easier than the other or is it a similar sort of process for both? Um, it's. I would say the vacant lot was, is generally more straightforward. When you've got an older home and say you're going to keep the older home and then build behind it, there's just a lot more to take into consideration. Um, some of the councils might make you also upgrade that older home so it does still meet their DCP right. within you know within reason so you could be up for a lot of renovation work to bring it up to say the basics standards for instance and the energy ratings that might be required uh, so there could be um, a bit more work there's definitely a bit more work involved when there's other dwellings on on the land I think it's much more straightforward if it's just a bare piece of land or if you're demolishing that's pretty easy as well if you know you're going to demolish the house then you put the DA in to demolish the house and to build whatever you're going to build um, but just be careful to make sure you get quotes for the demolishing of the house first because obviously if asbestos involved and there could be other things that um, increase the cost of that demolition work. Yep. And I guess there's a few you know, different strategies to go and it depends on the market and maybe even the council and that sort of thing. Can you, can you talk us through some of the different development strategies that you've used and that you're aware of? 
Yes. Well, firstly, I always say to clients when they ring me or when they make an initial inquiry, okay, what is your strategy? Do you want to uh, create equity? I mean, everyone wants to create equity, but or do you want a high yield? Um, and you can have a bit of both sometimes, but generally speaking, and of course, what is your budget? So I kind of break up the strategies into a yield, high yield strategy and an equity creation strategy. Um, now, the high yield strategy might be, uh, to give you an idea, a granny flat project where you've got an existing house, you can rent out that house, you can give it a little upgrade, maximise the rent on that house and then build a granny flat um, and then rent the granny flat and you've got a dual income. You can't subdivide that but you've, you end up with quite a high yield depending on, on the suburb, of course, and what the rental returns are. But you're not going to create equity from that because you can't subdivide it. It might be worth, it should be worth more after you finish building your granny flat, but if you took that to the bank to refinance it, they're most likely say, okay, how much did it cost to build the granny flat? We'll value the house plus the construction cost for the granny. Yeah. Um, yeah. But years down the track, when, when there's some sales references in the market, people will pay more, obviously, for two dwellings. Uh, so once, again, if you're looking at that strategy, maybe have a look at the area and see if there's any sales references in the market that you can use to then show to the bank and say, well, this one's just sold. It had a three-bedroom house with a granny flat at the back and, and it's sold for 50 or 100K more than, you know, what we paid. So that's a yield-creating strategy. Um, and then you get into the equity-creating strategies, which generally involve a land subdivision. So if you've got one piece of land and you're going to subdivide it into two, um, you're going to create some equity. If you just did a straight subdivision, um, that's another strategy. So there's a straight subdivision, there's a development with subdivision involved. Um, and there's house renovations is another strategy. You're just, you know, upgrading a house or adding adding a new, uh, you know, enlarging that house to increase the yield or increase the end value. That's another strategy. So when you're subdividing, um, so you're going to build a duplex and do a Torrance title subdivision. You buy, you buy the piece of land, you build the, the duplex, and when you cut it in half, that land is going to be worth more than what you initially paid for it, generally speaking, yep. Yep. Um, plus the plus three-bedroom dwelling, say, that you've built on it. So that's how you can create equity. And in some of the areas that we've been working in, and, and again, it's been because the market conditions, we've been on an upright, you know, up cycle, which has been phenomenal. We've actually been able to create up to 300K in equity in some of these projects in within a 12-month period, which is just phenomenal. But generally speaking, I was going to say, generally speaking, you could... If, if you work, you know, on anything over 50K in equity creation, then you've just got to work out, okay, is that worth my, my time and my money? Yeah, and I, I guess that sort of uh, taps into the next question I was going to ask. I mean, I'm interested, we're talking 300K equity, sort of wanting to know for, for what sort of investment. And I know that people ask you all the time, um, what's your ROI? And I'm sure you get sick of that, but I'm going to ask you uh, anyway because you, you seem quite uh, gracious and, fr and friendly via via Skype in a different office. Um, <laughs> what, what are your typical returns, Joe? And and, and and where can that be maybe the, the not, not the smartest question to, to answer you when there's a number of variables? Well, um, I do always get, okay, what's that margin you 
want to work with? What what's the margin you the minimum margin you want to make out of a development? And everyone has twenty percent in their mind because it I think it's been bantered around for a, a long time twenty percent return. Um, I always say to people, well, you've also got to weigh up other other factors. Like um, you know, you're you're increasing your portfolio by another say two pro. To two properties if you're building in Sherlock and you know it's also the um, uh, the, uh, the oh, what's the word I was just going to use it's also the um, oh that's just actually it's just gone out of my mind sorry um, it's it's getting into the market yep. uh, as well so there's other things it, it's also creating a higher yield it's creating depreciation benefits and and getting you know lower tax bills that kind of thing they're all a whole heap of benefits that um you've got to weigh up as well apart from just the margin yes. but having yes. said that you know gosh some of these ones where we've done very well um I'm looking at one here on my screen and it, it was like 24% return on investment. Now, that's after our project management fee. It, that's phenomenal on a dual lock and I'm not saying go out there and look for these deals because it, it, it's all timing in the market as well. Yeah. Uh, we got the land at a good price. The, build, the construction costs have gone up recently, you know, so construction costs have probably gone up in the last two or three years um, by maybe 10%, you know, for us. Um, but, but, you know, when this initial tender was done, the construction prices were a bit lower. Then we had the growth in the market, the natural capital growth that was occurring. Um, and then we had some great sales references in the market um, that occurred. So it, it was a combination of some great factors. Also, obviously, we project managed and the benefit of having a project manager is to make everything happen very quickly because yeah. yeah. time is money and... Uh, to secure the lots, you know, we, you know, we, we went to great lengths to secure the good lots for our clients, and and it all stacked up in the end. But I, you know what? If I would look anywhere from a ten to twenty percent return on investment, because again, just got to factor in. Okay, what what's it worth to me? I mean, these are people that are holding as well. Um, we do have clients who had decided to sell because the market was so so strong. But most of our clients are building to to hold and to um, keep building up their own portfolios yeah. and to get the depreciation yeah. benefits. So, um, you know, return on investment. It's up to you what you want to make. You also get a lot of insights. You get a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge by going through the process. So you might decide to take a lower return on the first one. Um, learn the ropes, and then on your second one, you'll know, you know, a, a lot more about the figures. Yeah, well, I mean, so, there'll be some people that would just put, you know, that much value in the education of the process. They might be happy to break <laughs> even because now they've got the tools to move on. And, you know, if you're jumping up and down saying, I want my 20%, well, where else are you getting, say, 15 or 12 or maybe even 5? You know, there's... Well, that's right. It's, and the cash rate is, what, 1.5% still, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, you're right. I think any return is a great return. Obviously, the higher, the better. If you get, you're going into business to do this and, and make it your living, then you want to get higher returns. But, um, you know, 
there's a lot of other benefits as well to property development. We, we talked about the, the property development sort of benefit is that you're creating equity, whereas, you know, even in some of your off-the-plan things, some of that was out of your control. For, for all the research, you're, you're relying on the, on the market to continue to trend upwards. H- how do you ensure that you're creating equity in a development and, 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 and what are some of the, the, the traps and pitfalls for would-be, would-be developers that are trying to do the same? Well, I think um, a land subdivision will always create you some sort of equity. When you're building and subdividing, you'll always create some sort of buffer. That's what I found in my experience anyway. Um, Even in areas where we've been plateaued, because we've been been working um, in the Hunter for 17 years nearly, and uh, we've gone through two cycles, two property cycles. There was a long time of plateauing um, while we had the GFC and the the credit crisis and there wasn't much movement in Sydney as well. Um, so I think you've, by going through that um, subdivision process, you will create some equity and it's just a matter of knowing your numbers and sitting down and working out, okay, how much how much are they going to be valued at at the end and work back um, how much it's going to cost me to build and subdivide and just have a look and see what the numbers are showing you. And how does the the property bloom business work? Where where do you sort of start and finish with development? How, how, if someone sort of comes to you and they say, "All, all right, Joe, I've got you know I've got my loan sorted. I've got a bit of bit of cash aside. We're ready to go." How does that sort of process start with you? Uh, well, we will make sure that they have their own independent financial advice first, and that they've spoken to their accountant and they've again got their loan pre-approved, like you mentioned. Uh, and then we will start searching for a site with them after they've signed up with us. We will start searching specifically for them after discussing their strategy, finding out what they want to do with the property, um, and we'll present uh, whatever we find to them. We put a little one-page project analysis together. We present that to the clients. They can take that off, show their accountant and have a have a chat. And if they're happy with, with that particular project, then we will go and negotiate the purchase um, of the property or the land and then we project manage everything for them. They'll enter into a direct contract buying the property and they'll also enter into a direct contract with the builder. We'll get, um, as along, along the process, we'll get uh, a concept plan drawn up. We get that priced by the builder and um, then we come back, we, we, we look at our numbers. We always start with an initial estimate, but our estimates are based on our history and our experience. So we know that if we're going to build a duplex about that size on a, on a block that, you know, is relatively flat and it's good and it's similar to the last one we finished, then the numbers should be quite similar. Every development site is different, so you'll always get a little bit. So we put a, put some contingency in there for anything that we you know we don't know may happen along the way, or any extra costs that might might be incurred. Um, but generally speaking, uh, by the time we get to the end of the process, and this is very important. This is because our builder has got such a great um, way of estimating. They've got a fantastic estimation department, and in a builder's quote or a tender, you will always have some provisional items. The provisional items mean that you will pay whatever the cost is. So they'll put a, an allowance, but you'll pay if, if it's over that allowance, you'll pay that. If it's under, you'll get a credit. Um, some items that will be provisional will be uh, site cut or site preparations. So when the builder is cutting the site, 
if they happen to hit a bit more rock than was anticipated and it goes over allowance and you'll pay for the extra fill to be removed or the extra fill to be bought in um, and uh, any of the, the excavation costs. The next one will be the, the peering, the slab peering. Yep. And again, they need to uh, support the slab by piers and they'll drill down into the earth until they hit a solid um solid area and then they'll pour the concrete into the piers so the cost for the piers is a little bit unknown again the builder will put an allowance in per lineal meter for peering but you really don't know until the concrete has finished his work and put their invoice in for the volume of concrete required and how much drilling was required now um another one will be retaining walls as well again after the site's cut they they allow for retaining walls off the plan but sometimes you may need to retain a little bit more or a little bit less so they're usually the three uh provisional allowances in in a tender and if you've got a builder who wants to win your business they don't allow enough in there they'll put a little allowance in there to show you that they've thought about it right. but if they haven't you if they haven't allowed enough then at the end you'll have variations so what you thought would be the build cost actually is higher um, in our case, our builder, we much prefer to come back to our clients with credit and say, guess what? We didn't need all that money for peering. And so here's another 5K back credit. Here's another 10K back. Um, and that's typically what happens. So by the time we get to the end of our um, project, from where we originally estimated, we, including our contingency, we generally end up lower than what we started out with our estimates. So for costs. Uh, so I always like to be conservative. So we, we our cost estimates are quite conservative as well as our estimated in values. So we always say to our clients, go in, talk to local agents. You you know you need to feel comfortable with, with our due diligence. And they do that in most cases. But again, having those actual comparable sales references in the market where you're working, that will, you know, that's so important because you, it'll just make sure that your project is as close to what you've estimated when you when you finish as to when you started. Some great advice there on the on the due diligence, Joe, and and a nice little inside tip in uh, making sure that builders aren't underquoting like the real estate agents are all getting in trouble for at the moment. Um, if people want to get in touch with you if they're interested in developing or they've got some questions, Joe, what's the best way to do that? I can just go to the website propertybloom.com.au. Uh, we have a newsletter that we send out about every month or so, so you can sign up for that and stay in touch that way or you can give us a call or shoot an email. All the details are on the website. There's some case studies on there as well. Awesome. And if there's one piece of advice that you could give would-be developers or even investors in general, what, what would that be, Jo? Get started quickly. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people put it off. And you know what? It's got to be the right it's got to be the right side. So don't, I'm not saying jump into anything without thinking about it, but don't um, don't let don't get too carried away with. Uh, don't waste too much time. I guess I'm saying is on on you know running your numbers and and going back and doing more courses or or you know you really just need to jump in and get a little development under your belt and make sure that you understand the process because that's that's the best way to learn. Um, and a lot of our clients do learn by going through us. We do hold their hand, of course, in the first one. And then a lot of our clients will go off and do their next development by themselves with, of course, our blessing. And we pass on all the information and our contacts to them and for them to use as well. So I would just say don't um, procrastinate. Um, jump in, make some decisions and, and get moving on your journey. I think that's awesome advice, Joe. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Bye.